Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with the incredible entrepreneur, Alyssa Rapp. Right now, she's the CEO of Surgical Solutions, a Deerfield-based healthcare company. But wait till you get to know her. She's incredible. Welcome to the Indispensables. Today, I have Alyssa Rapp, who is the author of Leadership and Life Hacks with Forbes Books. She's the CEO of Surgical Solutions. She's a lecturer in management at the University of Chicago Business School and Stanford Business School. Alyssa Rapp, welcome to The Indispensables. Thanks for having me, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on the show. And tell tell our listeners, what's your story? I mean, how does somebody get to be like you? Oh, you're, you're far too kind. I think that if life were lived in reverse, it would be an easy answer. Uh, the choices haven't been lin- linear, but they are all additive. I went to business school to follow my dream of being an entrepreneur and actually thought I would end up doing that in the health and fitness industry because my stepfather, who's a mentor to me, built East Bank Club, the largest one-stop shop fitness club in the country. And while I went out West in my 20s to build those, Um, I fell in love with two other things. One, my husband, a former World Series baseball champion, for any baseball lovers like you, Bruce, uh, Hal Morris, and two, an idea to to start a a dot-com in the e-commerce space involving the U.S. wine industry. Talk about not where I started. That business was an outgrowth of my time at Stanford Business School as a student. I ended up slogging through it for a good decade in Silicon Valley. We pivoted from an e-commerce company to a media company. And that was a really, really important 10-year career run for me, not just in terms of time, but in terms of life experience as a first-time CEO and as a first-time dot-com CEO and all of that. And when we exited that company to a hedge fund in 2015, I took a couple of years uh, to rethink what I wanted to do next. And we had had two girls. Our youngest had then just been born. And for two years, I then did advisory work for two family offices and two private equity firms in two cities, Chicago and San Francisco. And come 2017, Hal and I decided to move home, which is Chicago for us after 15 years out out west. And once I got here and the little one, Audrey, our bigger one was five and the little one was two and a half, I was ready for the CEO chair again. I wanted to do something in private equity because I'd enjoyed the work I had done advising those kind of firms. And interestingly enough, a firm with whom I had a good relationship ended up having a need for a turnaround CEO in healthcare. And I felt like it was an exciting challenge, as scary as uh, as it seems. So that is how I ended up the CEO of Surgical Solutions starting January 2018 and uh, had you know been there for about three and a half years. Wow. Uh, so that is a lot. But the business, just to rewind a little, the business that you were describing uh, that you ran for 10 years, it was called Bottle Notes. Is that right? It was called Bottle Notes, and it started as a Netflix for wine idea. It was a subscription service where we sent you wine tailored to your personal tastes using patent pending matching technology. And then due to a massive regulatory shift, we, we ended up having to pivot to a media company. And it was a really great life experience, really hard, really hard. I don't know what great life experiences aren't hard, but it was uh, it was uh, really two startups in one. And then we built a whole 
series of relationships with Condé Nast and other major publishers and advertisers to become kind of like the food and wine magazine for the next generation. And then after that 10 year run, I uh, was ready to not just be the wine girl forever and also loved, loved what I learned about technology development after a decade plus in Silicon Valley, but also liked the idea of leveraging that and applying it to other industries, not just wine. So when I did that advisory work for the two private equity firms and, and two family offices, I was applying that experience set to other e-commerce and luxury good categories, which was really fun and exciting. And truth be told, that's where I thought I'd probably hang my hat as a CEO next in a not wine business, but an e-commerce or digitally enabled, tech-enabled consumer product business. It just so happened I ended up in healthcare services business. But what's so interesting to me about that is that, so you've lived through business revolutions, right? Because you, you mentioned a regulatory shift when it comes to, I'm guessing, shipping wine. It was. It was very astute. And I've lived through another industry revolution in having been the CEO of a healthcare company through COVID. Right. It's uh, It's... No shortage of uh, School of Hard Knocks learning, let me tell you that. But in the midst from 2005 to 2015, when you're uh, pivoting to media, media is undergoing a technology upheaval and transformation. Totally, yes. Uh, And and so, I mean, my recollection is uh, that was a time during which magazines turned into um, uh, internet media and so you, you, you've gone through one revolution after another. That seems accurate. That seems to be the theme. I'm not going to disagree with you. And, and so how do you, how do you manage that? Uh, you talk about productivity hacks, um, of course, uh, life hacks and leadership hacks. Uh, that's, that's your bailiwick in your book. And that's what you're trying to share with people. Um, but, uh, gee, along the way, uh, I'm always talking to people how to cope with uncertainty, how to cope with change. It sounds like uh, you've, uh, you've been riding waves of uncertainty and change to tremendous success. Uh, don't you ever fall off the surfboard? Fall off all the time. And uh, you got to be willing to get on and willing to dust yourself off and put the bandages on when you've been banged up as you fall. I think that, you know, how you how you manage through them, which is not necessarily the same as success, is shared mission, vision, and purpose, right? If you, you know, how do you turn an 800-pound gorilla by the hand one step at a time? So it's really in the sea of uncertainty and all very choppy waters, very clear, clear, and to use that exact metaphor, very clear understanding of to where you're rowing. Right. And even if you have too few people on the boat and the seas are incredibly choppy, if you know where you're going and there's shared vision and purpose and why and how, you can often, not always, often will yourself there and you will do it with more clarity and probably speed than others who aren't don't have that sense of maybe desperation isn't the right word, but but purpose and focus. Uh, that's how I have thus far navigated through crises and times of change. It isn't easy. And, you know, and just when I think every time in my business career, I think I've managed through the uh, last crisis and should be in for some smoother sailing. There's there's a new curveball that's thrown my way. And, you know, as my husband would say, you just have to keep swinging. I mean, until it's the ninth inning and the third out, keep going. So uh, I'm, I'm intrigued that now, of course, you're an operator, right? You're 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 um, you're running surgical solutions. You describe it as a turnaround. Uh, I know a thing or two about the private equity world. 
Um, that's sort of my secret career, which is that we come in often after a private equity company has uh, acquired a business. Often it's a genius founder led business that has reached its limit. The role we play is uh, diving very deep, very fast um, and giving the new leadership team a dossier of here's who all those people are, not just at the top level, but second level, third level, fourth level. As a result of that work, I know just how challenging and uncertain and change ridden uh, the turnaround world is. So here you go again. Yeah, well, it was a one of those situations where I said yes and then looked in the mirror and said, what have I done? The, the reality is, is that when there's a crisis of leadership in a private equity backed situation, which is what this was, by no fault of mine, it wasn't my own mess I created. They brought in a big corporate CEO who wasn't as entrepreneurial, who was rejected by the passionate founders who had handed over the business to private equity. These are, these are relatively classic euphemisms one hears about in private equity. I came in with no healthcare experience, but a lot of experience running my own company. I had that empathetic heart for the founders and leveraged while they were exiting the business officially at that point had got to leverage that relationship to Surgical Solutions Benefit while also having the experience running a company and knowing that this one needed to be totally professionalized and lean down, reconsider the value proposition, reconsider how to bring that value proposition out to market. And then of course, do all the classic turnaround items like slashing costs, supercharging growth, and do what's needed when a private equity firm is long in the tooth on a company and they've been in it three years and they've been going the wrong direction. So my greatest superpower was bringing in young green talent and giving them a tremendous amount of responsibility and coaching and watching them kind of rise to the occasion in the roles and also being very honest and transparent with the board about what the strengths of the business were and what the weaknesses were and, uh, and leveraging their support and confidence to help drive the ball forward. And by retooling the value proposition, strengthening some shaky customer relationships, banging down the doors of new ones, bringing in an entirely new executive team and really putting in the work which is what it always takes. It's a lot of work. You know, two years later, I'm really proud to say that we got it turned around and exited to a global strategic base in Mexico City. Wow. And so are and you're still the CEO. You got your exit and they want to keep you in the seat, which says a lot. Thank you. They, I had a one-year lockup and that was up in February of 2021. And I have since filed an S1 for a special purpose acquisition corporation, a SPAC, um, we have not IPO'd, so there's not much more I'm allowed to say at this point since it's still a quiet period. Uh, but yeah, and, and right after the exit of the company to Grupo Vidomex, the global sponsor, I will say that a month later when COVID hit, it would have just been an integration challenge, but then it became an, a classical leadership challenge of how do you shepherd this healthcare services business onto which I had enabled a, a as you might expect, a fair amount of data and dashboarding and, and technology. But how do you shepherd this and these 300 people through the pandemic, right? They We experienced the same 90% elective surgery volume dip that hospitals did. And that was in a business that's 80% paid per case served was pretty harrowing. So that life experience was really interesting and really hard, but we did a really good job and still managed to maintain and grow in that time. And now as we pull out of the pandemic, we experience from a labor standpoint, many of the same challenges that many other industries are experiencing with 
uh, the impact of a lot of the unemployment policies through the pandemic. And I'm not going to suggest on, on, on the indispensables whether those were good or bad. I'm just here to say to you that the net impact of them is it's a very tight labor market. There's a tremendous shortage of talent. Tremendous shortage of talent coupled with healthcare workers who experienced extraordinary amounts of burnout and exhaustion, which would have exacerbated any turnover anyway. So the leadership and managerial challenges of the last year from COVID far eclipsed those classical leadership managerial challenges of integration with a global enterprise, um, although we got to experience both at once. And as I think to the next phase of my own career, and hence the SPAC, as you would see in the S1 filing, it's called Health Well. I think about my time in Silicon Valley and the power of tech enablement. And I think about my last three years in healthcare. And I realize that this intersection of healthcare technology is really a broad-based industry, I believe, will move mountains for the U.S. healthcare system, if not the global healthcare system. So under any circumstances, in the best of circumstances, doing a turnaround uh, is challenging. Uh, doing a turnaround involves uh, giving some people bad news. Doing a turnaround involves giving some people the good news that you have to transform the way you do business. Um, and uh, finding the band-aids and idiosyncrasies in the founder-led business. And as you said, professionalizing. Uh, I love that concept because that's so much what needs to happen to organize a company properly to scale it for growth. You said one of your superpowers is bringing in green talent. I'm assuming if that's the case, that one of your superpowers is also coaching and developing green talent. I'd like to think so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing. And um, and it's interesting you say that uh, the original swing at the pitch, as it were, for the investors was a big uh, company CEO. I find so often the big company CEOs look at a small founder-led business and they can see everything that's wrong, but then they're, they're not, well, which department do we call to fix that? Those leaders, in, with their experience, are great at making big bets with big resources, but this idea of getting something that is founder-led professionalized while maintaining that entrepreneurial engine, there's a, a, a phase in between, in my humble opinion, that founder-led business and the big company division had becoming the CEO. And those can be a real culture clash. And I don't and I don't have the right answer, but I would argue that smart people who have been and hardworking people that have been founders are probably better suited for that tweener stage than the big company CEO coming in, because I've seen that movie fail more than once. It's not because they're not great leaders. It's just the wrong fit. Yeah. And they, they, they don't have the experience of, oh, you actually have to go in there personally and you have to toggle between the details and the big picture. A hundred percent. It's being on top of a business versus in a business. And you can't do the work of running a company, I don't believe at any level without being in the business, to be clear, but you certainly can't afford to not roll up your sleeves, at least to your elbows, when it's sub 100 million. You can't do it. It just, you got to roll up your sleeves. It doesn't get, the work doesn't get done otherwise. Not all the work, right? You can have some great people, but you're never going to have as many as you need. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that kind of C level team, um, a, a group of C level leaders who know how to go into the details and then toggle back to the strategic level, can deal with the board, can deal with the investors, then can go back down. You know, you're in a highly regulated business. What is, what's the bottleneck in, what's going on in regulatory? Why is there a bottleneck? Then you can go back up. 
what's going on in engineering or quality assurance, then go back up. What's going on in sales, then go back up. And that is a special skill set. And by the way, you know, in my experience, that is net present value, like a billion dollar skill set. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd like to think so, but I think that you're right. It's you really are toggling between key stakeholder management and communication and engagement with the board, as well as active managerial footprint and hand all hands on deck with your executive team. It's neither, it's not either or. And if you, you know, Marissa Mayer wrote the introduction to my book. She's a very close girlfriend of mine. And she was the first female engineer at Google who wrote, you know, the code that's 80% of the Google search engine still today, many argue, um, but also was the CEO of Yahoo. And she, I remember watching all those years when she was the CEO, because our, our children are the exact same age as she was managing Yahoo. And her attitude was the right attitude. Those 3000 employees at the time, she was responsible for all of them. She was responsible. She was a fiduciary to the shareholders. She was hired to get the company exited because there've been several failed attempts at that prior to. And, you know, she really got in the business and you, and that was a multi-billion dollar business, right? But I just don't believe you can skate on top and be as effective as you need to be, at least not in a turnaround. I suppose if you were in a high growth, low competitive landscape, monopolistic market position, kicking off 80% gross margin for whatever it is you're selling, then perhaps you wouldn't need to have all those competitive moats or as engaged of a CEO, you could sort of just coast because you could outspend your mistakes. When you're really trying to turn something around, the mistakes have been made. There's really not much more room for them. It's like in the U.S. Open golf tournament this weekend, you know, when the when the person, the breakout Spaniard had won and the person coming up behind him had a shot at it when he when he screwed up one of his last shots and out of bounds, like there are some things from which you can't come back in a turnaround. You've all that that poor shot has already been hit. So you better keep it in the fairway. And that's not always obvious how to do that. So it's I like the challenge of turnarounds. I, I They're entrepreneurial in nature, which obviously speaks to me as a deep down an entrepreneur. You know, I think that having run started and run my own thing, I have admiration and appreciation for how hard that is to do. And it takes a very specific type of individual to get that done. And founders who hand off to people who with whom they feel are stewarding what they've created, I've seen it both in my own experience as well as other people's succeed. It's when they feel it was their baby was ripped from their arms and someone didn't believe they were a quality enough parent to parent that child through its teenage years. That's when it gets really antagonistic and there's a lot of seller's remorse. But you know, hopefully PE folks will get smarter and smarter across industries by making the choices that they make in that regard. I, I want to ask you, because you're uh, one of those few people who has this kind of experience, um, that uh, you said one of your superpowers is bringing in green talent. Uh, you must coach them and develop them. What was your strategy for going down into the organization and finding uh, bench strength that was hiding? You know, one of the things I love to do, I find that, that there'll be, you know, you say, well, what's that person doing in the VP chair? And then you go down and you find, oh, there's someone who reports to that person who should really be running this outfit, this particular department or team. There's no substitute for shoe leather. Like I put on scrubbed and I walked the halls of the hospitals and I looked at which team members looked me in the eye and I looked at who interacted with the customers the best. And I I got a sense for the depth of the organization by doing that, by like literally walk around old school, walk around management. And then once we had some raw talent in the field, for example, which is different than a corporate hire, 
I created a leadership development program. We gave him, we created an HR one-on-one program. So our field managers had some of the basic fundamental HR training they needed to do their job better. I created myself through my work, as you talked about in the beginning, uh, through different business schools, you know, a 10 module managerial skills type lab where we would bring in cohorts of 10 from around the country and do these vignettes that we wrote incorporated. And then for the final project had the, had the field team leaders write their own and bringing people together from different points in the organization to have open dialogue about the challenges that they face. They not only realize they're not in silos, that not each of these hospitals are not alone, that many of the people, whether you're in Tennessee or Texas or New York or Missouri are dealing with the same types of issues and it creates camaraderie and teamwork. It also, you know, this sense of, oh, my CEO is going to spend an hour and a half on Zoom with me six weeks in a row, and I'm going to get a leadership lab certificate for doing this. There's something, there's there's this feeling of you've gotten something for free of value. You've gotten a snippet of a piece of education, which it feels good when people invest in you. It feels good when people invest in me. It just feels good that people invest in you So, and for the company to invest in you. So we created the leadership development programs that would take help with that succession planning in that tier to give everyone the opportunity to continue to rise. Now, what do I think you do for corporate leaders that you're looking to rise? Give people jobs, not just titles, responsibilities, like a full shoe size bigger than they're ready for and say, I I think you can get it done. I believe in you. And what do I need to do to set you up for success? That's what people have done for me. I believe in that classic adage. If your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. Like if it's, if it doesn't feel scary, if you don't feel like you're being pushed way out of your comfort zone, just like just almost over your skis where you're about to tumble, I don't feel like it's enough of a growth stretch. And so, I mean, the art is not to fall every time on your face, but I think that what I've found is that when people are hungry and talented and hardworking, nine times out of 10, they'll outwork their inexperience and or if they're open and authentic enough, know how to engage people to mentor and coach them to jump that experience curve. So I, 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 that has been my experience in both a startup and here. And maybe it's because out of necessity, I didn't have the resources to just go hire the 20-year veteran because I didn't have it in either context. But it's also more fun and inspiring to watch people have big aspirations, vision, get to own something, whether it's the CFO, the technology product manager who hadn't had either role before and watch them evolve into it. It's just, that's much more satisfying. Yeah. And so then identification and selection becomes a huge part of the puzzle and staying sufficiently in dialogue that you're able to troubleshoot so you don't let somebody dig too big of a hole for themselves, right? Well said. Agreed. Um, Well, this is uh, fascinating. Uh, Alyssa Rapp, uh, CEO of Surgical Solutions, author of Leadership and Life Hacks with Forbes Books. Uh, We're going to take a break for one minute and then we'll be right back. Are you a leader of your organization looking for straightforward, data-driven business guidance? Then look no further than the Conference Board's new podcast series, CEO Perspectives. The Conference Board is a business think tank that provides trusted insights for what's ahead to the world's leading companies. Each episode features a 30-minute conversation by some of the Conference Board's noted subject matter experts, discussing a range of relevant business issues critical to CEOs right now such as the return to workplace, infrastructure spending, and where U.S.-China relations are headed, among other timely topics. You can find our new podcast series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We invite you to listen and subscribe to CEO Perspectives, brought to you by the Conference Board.
We're back with Alyssa Rapp. Uh, she's the author of Leadership and Life Hacks with Forbes Books. She's the CEO of Surgical Solutions. She's an experienced turnaround CEO. She's also a lecturer in management at the University of Chicago Business School and at Stanford Business School, from which she, I should say, uh, earned her MBA. Uh, so let's pick up the conversation where we left off. One of the things I've noticed is uh, uh, people like you have a great eye for talent. And uh, so how do you develop that? And how do you, uh, how do, you do something more than uh, going on your gut? Like, how do you vet talent? And how do you make sure you've got the right person to bet on? I think those are all excellent questions. And Joel Peterson, one of my favorite professors from business school and longtime mentors, uh, has oft said, and he was the former chairman of JetBlue, head of the Hoover Institute at Stanford, it goes on and on, uh, has said, even the best of the best at hiring get it right seven out of 10 times. So you can get, I think, good at identifying talent on a page and even in a conversation. Fit is often something that will take more time to develop. So I think it's a multivariate question. If I were assessing how I got assessed for the surgical solutions role was not only a series of interviews with all the board members, as well as a private equity firm, but then had a formal assessment by GH Smart. And now my close friend, Andre Safrani has his own firm, Apogee Advisors, that I have used and would use again, where it's a you know an expensive investment in a formal assessment where someone looks at you and your track record and history from childhood to present and tries to pattern match, would this be the right fit? You know, in the rest of the world when that's just too expensive and you're not going to necessarily always do that, although they do that more and more for board roles. There's the bias I have, and I married a professional athlete, was a serious athlete for 15 years. So I, I have this bias, understandably, a general historical experience of being extremely dedicated, committed, passionate to something, whether it's baseball or piano, where there's a, where there's a track record of striving for excellence. And it required grit and sacrifice. Those themes I can usually count on to portray and predict someone who will more often than not have those qualities still from a worker standpoint. And that doesn't have to be athletics or music. It could be you emigrated here from Russia in your teenage years, like our technology product manager at Surgical Solutions who started as my chief of staff and went to Yale on a full ride for theater. I mean, I, you know, th there are things where you're like, wow, this person seems exceptional for some way, shape, or form, or you had a tragic loss of both your parents in your teenage years, and you've rise to the ranks in your career and seem emotionally stable and really driven and yet empathetic. Like you're someone I'm going to bet on. You've had experienced extreme loss and had to and develop resilience. That to me is so important in whom I pick on a team because when the going gets tough, as it inevitably does, it starts tough when you walk into a turnaround, but inevitably gets tough in anything I've done thus far. You want people in the foxhole that you know have grit and you know have loyalty and with whom, most importantly, I find I have shared values. And that's true for key executives as well as board members, right? I mean, the schism of values is something that makes something not worth continuing to do. And I think that shared values, drive, resilience, loyalty, determination, shared purpose, all of that is the stuff for which great teams and high-performing teams, I think, are made. And the skills of how you coach up, you know, that's different, right? Did I take a chance on a director of finance who was a CFA and a CPA? Yes. Did he have a lot of awesome stuff in his CV? Yes. Did I think 
he was had the experience of being a CFO yet? No. Did I knew all the pattern matching I had done so far? Was it he should be able to do the role and let them start for six months in something that's not as big of a leap on the ladder and then climb way up after they prove themselves for six months? I also think that's a really good tactic. So, so you, you've you've said a lot, and I have uh, two fundamental questions. the The first question is, um, how do you put in the time and energy to evaluate people at the second level, and the third level, and the fourth level? Because I think you're right; it's time consuming. It can be expensive. There are uh, assessment firms that specialize in doing this at the C level. One of the reasons I do it at the second level and third level and fourth level is because nobody was doing that. Well, that's effectively what I did in that sense, Bruce, with this leadership lab. And I gave something of value to our teams at that second and third level and saw how they engaged with it. And there were rising stars in there who were either hyper engaged or hyper attuned or extremely astute in comments they made where I'd then go back to HR and say, you know what, these three people... You might have them as just plain old account supervisors. These need to be our junior account managers next. What relationship in your life has value that you don't invest in? It takes time. It takes effort. And it does, just doesn't just happen. These people don't just come down the chimney. You have to invest in getting to know them and understanding them. And you can't do it in a 5,000-person organization. Okay, you then need to have the next level of talent being attuned and being extraordinarily harvesters of talent. And I would say the greatest strength of our most talented field team leaders, like our senior account managers, is their ability to identify and cultivate talent. And what we celebrate in the organization is their ability and reward them for is their ability to cultivate and and coach up talent so that there's, this is a place, uh, to quote my friend, Doug Tomlinson, uh, who founded Vino Volo, he wanted Vino Volo, the airport wine bar company that was omnipresent prior to the COVID, and I'm sure still is, will be, after a place where people could be plant and grow, where you can really grow a career. This isn't a job. This is a place you can can evolve your career. And the more career ladders we create, because the people, as they rise in the organization, pull people up with them, that becomes a positive, virtuous cycle. It doesn't just happen. It takes every level investing in, in, in that cultivation of talent, I believe. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's being systematic. Uh, being diligent, putting in the time. I mean, the fact that you were teaching those leadership classes yourself is extraordinary. I wonder if that would have been possible without Zoom. And like if, 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 if you would have been able to, or it certainly would have been a different proposition, right? I did the first cohort of all in New York City for 10 of our leaders there because it had regional density. It was a two-hour flight from Chicago. I needed to go visit that monster customer anyway. Could we have done it in other places where we had some regional uh, density? Yes. Would have been more expensive and harder? Absolutely. And the fact of the matter is, these are some of the opportunities that the pandemic created from a Zoom standpoint that I hope and expect will continue long after this damn thing is dead, gone, and buried. Right. Like it it, it accelerated these sort of um, incipient trends. It accelerated these trends by miles, right? Okay, so here was my other big question, because I love that you focus on drive, grit, resilience, loyalty, shared values and purpose. And some of these, this is sort of uh, a question I ask a lot of people. I ask four-star generals this question. Do you think these are innate traits or are they are they are they acquired so young based on early nurturing or are these things you can teach? Can you teach grit, 
This is the this is the conversation of a, a glass of wine with Alyssa Rapp and Hal Morris parents uh, all the time. I I will honestly tell you we we discuss this, and I'll I'll answer your question through an anecdote. I cannot say definitively if it's nature or nurture. I can say definitively if you had. Hal and I were born hardwired, intrinsically motivated, and then given extraordinary opportunities cultivated by our parents to pursue our passions and dreams, period, full stop. It was hardwiring and nurture. In both of our cases, that's an easy answer for you. In the case of our children, uh, there's some hardwiring that we see that pattern matching is similar and some of it that's different. What we hadn't seen in our elder daughter for a while was that activation of competitive spirit or falling in love with something, whether it was piano or tennis or golf, we're swimming for that matter. It was, we were pushing, she was resisting. And, you know, there are two ways to win a game of tug of war, right? Pull harder or drop the rope. And we really got to the point where we realized, especially in the pandemic, it's our job. There's something you have to do, right? There's something you have to do. And then there's some things we're going to push you to do. But what has been really interesting to me is in the last four to six months, and it could be a maturation issue. It could be a starting to see the payoff of hard work turn into learning all the Beatles songs and loving to play them or starting to compete at USTA tennis and realizing that the work being put in translates into winning points, let alone games, let alone matches. We have seen a change in our eight and a half year old. And I can't tell you if it's nature or nurture because deep down in my heart, I think she always has had it in her. We are her parents. I could be wrong, but it feels like that. But it took nurture and a little bit of backing off to activate the hustle where it became her owning it and wanting it and, and her pushing it. And so if you had asked me this question a year and a half ago when my book came out, I would have given you a, I absolutely don't know. I think where I sit today and what we've observed, especially in the pandemic, is it really feels like it's helpful if there's some component of nature and there's undoubtedly an extraordinary amount of influence of nurture and the interplay of those team, two things, the percentages of the to- those two things, I simply do not know. But it feels like it's both. And if you have someone who is not a driven person by nature, but is surrounded by nothing but tape, type A driven people, is it probable that that person's game will get elevated or life perspective will be shaped? Undoubtedly. And if you take children of Olympic athletes who have no interest in doing that, all the talent in the world can be wasted. But if you have some, you know, talent, a lot of positive role modeling, and let's be honest, also access, right? How whatever form that takes to to exploring your wants, needs, and dreams, I think it's that combination of factors that can really shape the outcome. Ask me when our kids are grown. Maybe I'll have a better answer. They're eight and six today. Okay. So you got an uh you, you got an eight and a half year old and a six and something, right? Uh, so you, that's a great laboratory and where the stakes are high and where you really care, right? And uh, and I'm going to bet on those kids just from this conversation, knowing a thing or two about your husband. What about when you find somebody, you know, in the ranks? So uh, I'm fond of asking this question about integrity. Can, can you teach integrity? Like what if somebody's had a hard time, you know, when you get a hold of them when they're 18? or 16, or 19. My friends in the United States Armed Forces, of course, um, you know, they often get people who are about 18, and often they've had a rough time. Uh, and and so it, it is precisely their work to show them what's in it for them, 
to use whatever drive is in there uh, to bounce back when they fall down, to have a higher loyalty than just, you know, their next get. A greater sense of purpose and, and a greater sense of team. Yeah. And, and, and so I see, you know, the, the United States Armed Forces is a great laboratory uh, for, for that. Um, but I wonder, like, when you go find somebody, like, if you see somebody who has an ethical problem, is that just game over? Or if you see somebody who seems incurious, you 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 said something quite interesting, which I uh, which is see who looks you in the eye, uh, which is a great shorthand for probably a whole catalog. If we were psychologists of traits and characteristics, but when you get a sense that. Yeah, that's not where that person is coming from. Now, maybe as a private equity turnaround CEO, you just don't have time to be that person's, you know, pastor, best friend and coach. But what do you think? Like, like, can those things be learned later in life? Um, I'd like to think they can be because I do believe people can change. I think that the example you provided of the military is probably the most draconian and most effective way to re-imprint the values and psyche and as tough as it may be to get through for some people, and I imagine it must be. I had the benefit of an incredibly uh, tough, strong, capable mother from born from Holocaust survivors in the Netherlands with a very black and white sense of values and, and a unwavering attitude on integrity down to the choice of words. So I was raised with a very clear line on black and white issues, and Hal and I very much share the values from a parenting standpoint, there's nothing you could tell me that we will not listen to and hear and, and accept. We have zero tolerance world, zero tolerance for lying. And I think with business, it's tricky. Integrity, I've said to my teams, whenever I bring them on and new, new hires at any level in the organization, I can fix any mistake you make, except one. I cannot fix a breach of integrity. There's not a solve for that. I can't fix that for you. You screw something up, we can solve with money. You hurt someone's feelings. You make a mistake with a customer. I can apologize on your behalf. I can't. You breach your own integrity or this company's integrity. I can't solve that for you. And so then the follow-up question, I guess, you're, the question behind the question is, if people at a different point in their lives have already had some role modeling and breached integrity, can it be rebuilt? I think probably, yes, if, if it's tied to a payoff of why it matters. Why does being honest matters? Does it save lives? Could it save my life? Could it achieve the outcome misinformation would not simply allow for? I think if the payoff seemed high enough, I would under, I think people could start to shift in a value standpoint, but I do think it's tough. I mean, God knows. It got, and I also think it starts young. Got to nip that shit in the bud young, young, right? It's no, you can't manipulate the truth. The only time my husband and I have flown off the handle in a way that you look back as a parent and be like, oh, you know, that might have been over, over the top is on this truth and integrity issue. You will not lie to us. It is the one thing we have to know in speaking to you is that you will tell us the truth. And whether it was a mistake or wrong, et cetera, if you tell us the truth, no matter what the crime was, the punishment just came way down. And that's, that's I mean, we try, it's hard. And I set the same value with the, with the company. I mean, I also am tremendously transparent and direct, not everyone's favorite quality, but I also just set that tone right out of the gate. And I think that once people walk into an environment where, they ex, where that's the expectation, they know that there's a culture of bullshit. It's just not going to be accepted. 
Yeah, there's no time for it. And, and it, I, you know, that's the one that makes me the most nervous is, is uh, a lack of veracity, um, a lack of integrity, which obviously they're, they're tied. But, but I do make a distinction uh, because people who uh, lack veracity sometimes can tell themselves a story uh, and they think that they're being somehow uh, that they're acting with integrity. Um, what about grit? That's another one that, you know, of course, it's become the in thing. And I do think it might be the like fundamental but for of success in almost anything. I think grit can be taught. I think some people are wired to withstand pain more than others. But I think circumstances and environment can absolutely teach grit. And again, part of that's hardwiring, and it is, but a lot of it is experiential. You know, classic case in point, and Hal and I were so aligned on this, thank God. Audrey has now become quite a, a lovely pianist, but she, had, when she was age five, wanted to also do violin. And I said, you're not doing this for me. If you want to do the violin, you do this one for you. And then halfway through her kindergarten or first grade, whatever it was, she said, I don't want to do this anymore. I said, okay, great. You committed to the year. You signed yourself up for this. When the year is done, if you want to just do piano the next year, that's totally fine. I didn't say you had to do this. But once you start something, you finish it. And it's the little stuff, you know, and I'm not saying we're perfect at teaching that, but I do think sports are also an amazing, uh, amazing Petri dish for teaching grit. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I've studied uh, karate, Okinawan karate, since I was seven years old. I'm 54 now. My teacher, who was my teacher at the age of seven, lives here. Um, so we have uh, in the dojo office guest house. He's lived here for six years. Um, and, and when I was a little boy, um, uh, my great uncle uh, was kind of a tough guy, you know, and, and he said, oh, what's this karate guy teaching you? And I told him, well, you know, a lot of what we do is just stand there and get punched. And he said, wait, wait, he's telling you how to take a punch. And I said, yeah. And he said, all right, this guy knows what he's doing. Like learning how to take a punch is more important than learning how to punch. That's right. And, and competing in a tennis tournament this weekend and losing these three matches, you know, she was pretty depressed. And I said, was your forehand improving? Did the third girl cheat and you realized you weren't keeping score properly and you know you have to now learn how to stand up for yourself because you should have won that one, right? These are all learning to your point exactly how to take a punch. And life does punch and it can even punch you in the jaw or the gut, right? The Mike Tyson line, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's accurate. And it's accurate. So this idea of giving grit can be taught, I do believe. I do believe. E easier if you already have some intrinsic grit, but can be taught. All right. So as our time is is narrowing now, as we're as we're running low on time, let me ask you, um, what what are your sort of best leadership and life hacks, or just a couple that you can, we can leave the listeners with? One I think I talk about the most from the first book, Leadership and Life Hacks, is this idea of episodic versus daily balance. If I woke up every day and tried to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect CEO, the perfect lecturer, the perfect, you know, board member, best friend, mentor, daughter, sister, it's just overwhelming. And I think instead, this idea of really picking two stakeholders a day and trying to nail them, that doesn't mean if my CEO life and my children come first one day, I ignore my husband. Hal is still my husband and he matters to me, obviously. And there are days where if he'd been traveling like he was in California all last week and he comes back. Like I'm going to need a dinner with him and the girls are going to have to be with the sitter or someone so I can like look him in the eye and have a conversation, and reconnect after he's gone for six days. 
uh, in addition to the day job or on a weekend, really trying to just focus on husband and children. Or if I have a four hour board meeting for the school board that I'm now on and I'm teaching at the University of Chicago that day, well, a whole bunch of other stakeholders are not going to get satisfied that day. But if you think, if I think about balance as something to achieve over several days or a couple of weeks, not in a single day, it becomes more achievable. Boy, that is genius. Is that that's it's iconoclastic because the better the better known thought is having it all. And I like the alternative view, which you can have it all but not at once. Yeah, no, that's genius. And I think you are exactly right. And you know, people are always telling me, well, I'm always juggling and I've got so much. And I tell them, well, if you want to get anything done, you gotta focus like a laser beam on something. I love that. Uh, so uh, choose a couple of stakeholders a day. You call it uh, episodic. And, and then you nail them. If you you know pick a couple stakeholders each day, and then and then do it and give it all you've got. So you do great at your CEO job, or you're a great parent that day, or you're a great wife that day, or you're a super present board member that day. Whatever it is, but be present. Do the best you can. Not try to be a little bit of everything to everyone in, in any given day. And it's easier said than done. But that strategy by often, more often than not, for me, seems to work. It gives me permission to not focus on something, which is to your point from before, the focus piece is what's really missing. Yeah, that is that is genius. Uh, Alyssa Rapp, CEO of Surgical Solutions. Uh, she's a lecturer in management at the University of Chicago Business School and Stanford Business School. Uh, and, and let me just say, um, Leadership and Life Hacks, I'm going to say read it because she knows what she's talking about. And thank you so much for being a guest on the Indispensables. Thanks for having me, Bruce. I really appreciate it. In our next episode, I talk with Brent Condritz, Executive Director of the University of Dayton Center for Leadership, where I have been honored and privileged to run programs. Uh, he's a fantastic guy. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about gotoism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.